So our reading in Mark this morning describes Jesus teaching crowds that included sinners and even more controversially hanging out with them in private. And while these are very common, you know, scenes in the Gospels, they, at least for me, raise these kind of wondering sorts of, sorts of imaginative questions like, why was Jesus sort of consciously focused on rubbing shoulders with sinners? Or as he taught them in public, do we suppose that there was a purpose in Jesus' teaching? Like, was he mindful of something? And, and if we suppose he was, to what was he mindful when he was speaking to crowds of sinners? And, you know, what was the content of Jesus' teaching? What were the outcomes that he had in mind? And I I think the outcomes he had in mind uh, happens to fit very well with our series, and that is Jesus was calling for followers. So the setting I want us to notice this morning is the more private setting where Matthew is hosting a reception for some of his old business partners so that they could meet Jesus. But the religious leaders, as you see in your passage there, they're really fearful of contamination. That's what's going on. They, they don't want to be at the same party with sinners. And they certainly don't want to be eating their same food and using the same utensils. They are literally afraid of contamination. And so they object to this setting that you might think of as Matthew's party or Levi's party. They object to it. Saying essentially, what kind of example is this? Jesus getting cozy with riffraff. Can you feel that? Like, come on, no self-respecting rabbi, much less somebody claiming to be the Messiah, would hang out with the riffraff. That just, that, that can't be right. But again, what if Jesus knew exactly what he was doing? What if he was looking for people precisely that he could invite to follow him? And so whether whether in public or in these more private settings, Jesus was always doing a couple things. He was explaining himself, and he was calling for decisions to follow him. So that's what lies right at the heart of what we're reading. Levi, Matthew, follow me. Sinners, follow me. Tax collectors, follow me. So you'll note that word in your passage, tax collectors. Who are these people? You know, like, why were they so notorious? And it's hard to get at in our culture, but maybe some ways to think about it would be, you know, what if you're at the beach or something and there's this, like, really mean parking ticket person, you know, just, like, really getting a kick out of ruining your day? That gets you into it a little bit. Or what if passing through one of our tollways, there was somebody on the other side of it demanding something more, and it went to your least favorite political party? That gets it into it a little bit. Or maybe you think of an unfair customs agent. I mean, essentially, these tax collectors were deeply disliked, deeply resented, actually almost as much as lepers. That's how much societal outcasts they were. And year after year, month after month, day after day, this dislike and this rejection got into their heart and soul. And so Jesus has this incredibly alternative message that says, I actually want to be with you. And I want to be with you so that you can understand what I'm explaining and you can come follow me. Well, who were those that were marked as sinners? The sinners were the religiously unclean. They were social outcasts. They were inferiors, disqualified from participating in civil life. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were a deeply despised class of person because they were sinning religiously. 
So not socially in public like the tax collectors. These were Jews who were failing to keep the law, and so they were sinners. And so when Jesus looks at these sorts of people, whether we might think of them as people today outside the church or people inside the church who are failing to be, you know, they're not being appropriately religious. When Jesus looks at either of those two groups of people, the message is the same, come follow me and seek apprenticeship to me through comprehensive repentance. Now, Paul, obviously, the only apostle Paul in his writings, had a very clear-eyed vision for what we're shooting for as followers of Jesus. So I just want to remind you, that, or I want to give you an imagination here, for the people who heard Jesus and got what he was saying, this is the kind of mindset they began to take on. Colossians 1, Paul says, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to present everybody fully mature in Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, to do that, you have to go into strict training. 1 Timothy 4, as you know, Paul's mentoring Timothy, he says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Be diligent. Give yourself wholly to these things. Watch your life. Hebrews 13 says, remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Or maybe the best one is in Titus, where Paul is again writing to a young person he's mentoring. You know, Titus has been sent to Crete, and you know, Cretans were the, you know, sort of the, the top of the heap in terms of being lazy, evil people. And Paul's saying to them, here's how you make disciples out of them. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. That, that word there for salvation means deliverance to all people. And it, that is to say God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. For Christ gave himself for us too. And that's a very important little word too. Because Paul's now gonna tell us why did Christ give himself? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what's good. So Jesus looks at groups of people and whether they're sort of sinning religiously or sinning more socially, he sees kind of the raw material, the humankind out of which God is creating for himself a people, purifying for himself a people who are eager to do what's good. Well, this for me is kind of a whole life sense of followership. It's a choice and a process through which I increasingly come to love and trust Jesus such that I am inwardly and gradually and progressively taking on his manner of being so that my outward conformity to him results in learning to live my life as he would live it if he were in my place. And this, by the way, is why the modern notion of I'm spiritual is not an appropriate response to Jesus's call. And I don't say that to be unkind to anybody. I completely get why people, for most people when they say I'm spiritual, what they mean to say is I recognize that there's an aspect of me and an aspect of human life that is beyond the material. I get that. And that's actually a good and right thing. But for many people today, the I'm spiritual means, but I really don't want anything to do with religion. And I'm quite certain I don't want anything to do with church. And again, I'm fully empathetic with people who are in that place. It, it just does not bother me in the bit. I, I completely get it. But I just want to suggest that it's not an adequate response to that question mark. I mean, I get it's where people are, but it's just not adequate. 
Because Christian spiritual formation is really explicit. Christian spiritual formation means growing in obedience to Jesus. And that he, that my sense of myself, my primary relational sense of myself is I'm an apprentice to Jesus. And so that's my primary personal, relational, and practical orientation. Well, we all know we battle with it. It's not easy. And I want to explain to you why I think followership of Jesus can be so difficult. I think it works like this. The more we choose something, the more we become that something. And we are all in the process of solidifying our identities by the decisions we make. And with each decision we make, we like pick up momentum in the direction of that decision. So there in the crowd sits a religious sinner who has been making decisions in that direction for maybe their whole life. And here sits, a, here sits a tax collector who has rationalized being hated and rationalized, you know, skimming off the top or whatever he was doing. Well, a friend of mine told, this week told me the story that I think is really helpful for us here. It's about a woman, but it could be about a man. It's got nothing to do with gender. But the story goes like this. I knew an old lady once who was the most ugly, bitter, mean-spirited person I'd ever met. But I'm told that as a young lady, she was beautiful, personable, and fun. But at age 19, her fiancé ran off with her sister three days before the wedding. It's a true story. Of course, she was understandably humiliated and hurt. But what's most tragic in this story is that she proceeded to choose to be hateful and unforgiving towards her sister and ex-fiancé the rest of her life. And though her sister was extremely sorry for what she had done and tried numerous times to make amends over the course of 50 years, this lady would never budge. And with each decision against love and forgiveness, she solidified in herself her bitterness. She became her hatred. The momentum of her decisions became irreversible. So she no longer chose it. She couldn't now choose otherwise. What started as her decision eventually became her nature. Because it goes like this, the more we choose something, the harder it is to choose otherwise. We create our character by the decisions we make, and our character in turn exercises more and more influence on the decisions we make. Soligamy. That is why we need saved. It includes going to heaven when we die. It includes, I'll even say, paying a penalty, you know, the penalty being paid for us or something. All the sort of normal notions of why did Jesus die for us. But what if salvation is at its heart deliverance? Deliverance from our stuckness. Because the truth of it is, in my long experience, without that kind of deliverance, what most of us are left with is pretending. Not pretending in a, like I'm trying to lie sort of way, but pretending in, what else do I have? I can't give up on this. I feel religious. But the truth of it is, the bent of my 
present desires, the structure of my soul, the, the, the present organization of my will and my loves, that is what I'm living out of, and I, I can't deny that, and it's not aligning very well often with Jesus and what he's up to, and so I, can't, I don't wanna quit, I can't quit, but this doesn't feel like it's happening for me, and so what I'm left with is sort of a religious pretending, even sometimes a relational pretending. But implicit in that question of follow me, question mark, is the notion that you'll not merely be forgiven, but you will be delivered, right? This is why the paradigmatic story, the pattern story in the Bible is Exodus. Yes, Exodus meant you are forgiven, right? You're you're in bondage because of your sin. And so, of course, by definition, any Exodus means, you know, putting it, Bluntly, God's over it, right? You know, all all the income free. But what does that imply? Deliverance. You're out of Egypt. You're out of Babylon. It's not mere forgiveness. It's it's the actually putting into a new space, a new time, a new vibe, a whole new thing going on that just little by little begins to break the power of the present bent of our heart. And if you've ever wondered, you know, why the spiritual disciplines, that's why. Little by little, they help unbend our heart. They help untwist our motivations. They reorganize our loves. They fundamentally begin to reconstruct our desires. Spiritual disciplines are just simply doing the little things day by day, moment by moment, that help us live into followership. And we do this, of course, not because we're earning anything from God, not because we're trying to get God to like us, we're not doing it for religious reasons, we're doing it for very practical reasons. And that is that I I came to Christ with habits of the heart, And the truth of it is, some of those habits of the heart that I had at 19 and that I might have even had at 19 months, they are still with me. And without a very conscious giving myself to Christ, without a very conscious making what's true about me, is honest to God, hand over my heart, I never once wake up in the morning and think I'm a bishop. Don't think it's ever occurred to me upon waking. I don't wake up thinking I'm a minister. I don't wake up thinking I'm a professor. I don't wake up thinking I'm an author. I wake up thinking I'm an apprentice of Jesus. And my only hope for being a decent father, husband, bishop, minister, author, professor, is to engage in this stuff. This is not rhetoric to me. This is the foundation of life because this is what's actually true. There's a lady, you, I don't know why you'd ever be aware of her. Her name's Iris Murdoch. She was an Irish philosopher who, in the century before, wrote novels about good and evil. And being interviewed once, she said, at critical moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Right? I mean, we think that we can do what's right on the spot, but we can't if our internal being is bent in a different direction. So we have to graciously train off the spot rather than simply trying on the spot to do what's right. Because no one can do that consistently 
And even if you get it pretty good, most people just end up really religious, judgmental sorts of people, mad at everybody else who can't try and do it right. But engaging in this, engaging in knowing that who we are actually is our loves, and that our loves have been expressing themselves millions of times over decades, and it's that that we need deliverance from. It's, it's not a, like a deliverance from evil. Don't think of this as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, it might include that. But even if it does, that, even that is a symptom. And what we're always invited to in our, follower of Je- in our followership of Jesus is to kind of seek that gentle deliverance of Jesus from the malaligned habits of our heart, our spirit, our will. So the question mark in follow me just kind of helps us think, what narrative is forming my habits? And the crucial question, who are you following in order to learn new habits? So if you need a, like a concrete imagination for what this could be like, and I know I always need a concrete imagination, so maybe here I'll try to help you with like a concrete imagination for what this could be like. So try to uh, take this on. Try it on for size. A disciple or an apprentice of, or follower of Jesus is someone who desires more than anything else to be like Jesus. So an apprentice of Jesus, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is somebody who desires more than anything else to be a follower of Jesus. That's what an apprentice is. So now just check in. I mean, not now, not here. But go for a walk. Go for a treat. Sit quiet. And just begin to wonder, is there something, if I'm honest, that I actually desire more than Jesus? And that, that, that actually, though I might not be conscious of it, that actually keeps me from giving myself fully to him as an apprentice. So a disciple, an apprentice, or follower of Jesus is someone who desires more than anything else to be like him and who then arranges all the aspects of their life to bring this intention to pass. So again, that includes the disciplines, but it includes all sorts of things where you just begin to arrange your life to bring your intention to pass. I mean, this is really easy stuff. Like when we were driving here this morning, Debbie and I were talking that, you know, we're going to go for a little drive next week and just wondering, you know, well, should we pack anything? But it's sort of a short drive. I mean, maybe we don't need to pack anything. And we tend to stop every two hours, right? If you're doing something, you just arrange your life to do that. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who desires more than anything else to be like Jesus and then who arranges all the aspects of their life to bring this intention to pass. That's the yes in that question mark. That's how you say yes to that question mark. Well, then just lastly, how does this happen? And I just want to assure you that you will be companioned along the way, that you'll never be on your own in this, and that if you even ever come to seeing that picture yourself and committing yourself to it and beginning to walk in that direction, that too will be a sign of God is with you and that God is stimulating your heart. What you need to know is that grace does not have its soul and maybe even primary point of reference to sin. Grace is the action of God in your life doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, which includes forgive yourself of your sins. But we must not ever reduce grace 
to just simply having to do with sin. Grace is the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. Grace is what pervades the kingdom of God. Because grace pervades God. God is love. And his love is expressed to us in giving us the power, the capacity to do what we cannot do on our own. And so because grace is fundamental to God's person, when he expresses himself, which is the rule and reign of his kingdom, well, then grace marks that atmosphere. So think of an atmosphere of a home, maybe your home. I don't don't know. It could have been marked by anything. could have been marked by a glorious joy or could have been marked with fear of judgment. Think of the place where you work. Think of the team you work in at work, right? Just think of an atmosphere, a vibe, a feeling, the ethos of something. And I just want you to hear that, that the kind of person who, who says the number one thing in my life is to be a follower of Jesus and I'm arranging the affairs of my life to do that, that person will be companioned by grace because grace is the atmosphere in which God is inviting us to live. And so with that imagination in place, this concrete choice to say yes to that question mark is always inspired and animated and enabled by grace. And that's our imagination for followership. I want to do it. I'm arranging my life to do it. And I know that all that is surrounded by and embedded in this atmosphere of God's love and God's grace.